We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the new cycle of people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster, and I could not be more pleased to be here with you. I mean, what do you want me to do? You want me to do something every time? No, no, every time. Like, for the last, like, five times, you've had, like, strokes during the (laughs) intro. So I was just, I was like, what's going to happen this time? It is all deliberate. It's all scripted. It's all scripted. This is wrestling. Yeah. Uh, That's Michael Moynihan, (laughs) Matt Welch, also here. Gentlemen, how the hell are you? Wonderful to be joining you both this fine evening. Fine. I think it is a fine evening. I'm just I'm, I'm just relieved that uh, Moynihan has taken my uh, bandana wearing uh, now style. I, um, what is that? Yeah, I realize. No, I'm doing a Tim Pool impression. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, it looks like a bean. <laughs> no, I just have a winter hat on because everything is. I, I came to came to the the tundra of East Egg, um, and it's like cold and raining, and I was outside, and um, I just came. I was like, oh, we got to do a podcast. But I forgot to take the hat off. I'm not trying to look like fucking little Steven over here. <laughs> 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 and by the way, I think he, they did a, a profile of him on uh, 60 Minutes. Oh, I just saw it on YouTube. I decided on the channel, oh, yeah. you know, the things that were YouTube recommendations. I was like, Little Steven uh, with Steve Croft or something. And I was like, that does <laughs> not sound attractive. Has he me, decided so. that he's going to play Sun City after all? I'm like, it's a guy, you know what? Oh, <laughs> wow. That's right. Who else was on that? Uh, I mean, Do you remember that, Camille? You're too young. Um, I ain't gonna play Sun City. The song it was a Bruce good song. song. I, the bad stuff happened. Yeah. Uh, no, Lou Reed is the that. star of that one. It's like realize now, baby, and it cannot be denied. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that was like the moment where people cared about South Africa, and then apartheid ended, and like everyone's like, yeah, we don't care what happens to them now. <laughs> yeah, I only remember apartheid ending. I don't remember yeah. anything before that. Yeah, maybe it's just too painful for me to remember. It's maybe too that's painful what it is. of uh, <laughs> in, in your community. Uh, yes, of a country very, very far from where there's a lot for us. Yes. There's a lot for us. Um, speaking speaking of filthy bandanas, I for whatever reason decided that it was a good idea to share with my children um, some old Guns and Roses songs. Oh, so what? I was playing for both of them just for fun. I mean, it's the it's the popular commercial. I song, used to love her, but I played uh, Patience and November Rain for yeah. Cohen and Leah. And uh, I actually I got video. I'm gonna shoot it to you. They they were they were both completely taken with it. They really, loved it, especially November. Did rain. they see They're the video? Like, totally of into November it. rain. So the guitar oh, solo. With, uh, you know, I was Canyon. I was playing it. What's her name? I hope Who's my wife it? doesn't hear this um, because I was playing it, and then all of a sudden there's like a woman like in a casket, and Leah says, "Wait a minute, what's going on there?" I said, "Nothing." And Did, I just no, you should have said, <laughs> "She said, darling, that is Stephanie Seymour." I don't know. I don't and know Stephanie Seymour is about to do some fantastic things. But um, she was watching Slash like just shred the guitar yeah, in front yeah. of the church, and she's like, "This is the best part." Did like, you Man. did you look at her when when he was sh- when he was shredding and just say, "Darling, if you pulled back that hair, he's black. He's, he's just like us. you. He's just like he's you. just like you. Don't you feel represented? You can. And seen? You can. This is someone for you to look up to. He's a drug addict, so alcoholic, yeah, with like hair covering his face. Yeah, yeah. he's always so smart. Yeah. He was passing. That's the thing about Slash. Was he smart no. in interviews? Is he smart in interviews? <laughs> no. I, I love Slash, like and he's he's wonderful, and he single handedly <laughs> brought back the Les Paul into rock and roll, which I totally appreciate. He did, um, and yeah. yeah, he's phenomenal, and uh, you don't need to interview him. 
No, I yeah. suppose we don't have to just talk about Guns N' Roses and Bananas this week. There's been a hell of a lot of news. We've got the uh, none the of it weird... is interesting. Guns N' Roses, by the way. <laughs> but we had that weird debate last night. Um, so the California versus Florida. Yeah. Um, we can get into that. A whole bunch of people have died since the last time so we recorded. Many deaths. Um, uh, Kissinger, Sandra Day O'Connor, Jimmy Carter's wife, which is, yeah. I think that's how we should refer to her. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I think it's the wow. respectful thing to do, or yeah. maybe just say first lady Carter first lady is the Carter. best thing you can do. Cause yeah. I mean, Rosalind, did you know that? I didn't know that. Did I know her name was Rosalind? Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah. It was a joke. Yeah. No, um, you, I'm not sure that you did. I'm not sure. You either. <laughs> she doesn't remember <laughs> apartheid. Well, yeah. I, I can't help if it. If you don't. Yeah. Uh, Maria San, this is another death this he's week. Dead? Uh, his, his show, show. Oh, he's dead. Oh, he's dead. It's very okay. sad. Shane McGowan died, dude. Don't bury the Shane lead. Shane McGowan, you don't know who that is. Um, no, I don't know who you're talking about. Shane McGowan, who died, and I just saw, did you see the photo, Matt, of him in the, the deathbed photo? Oh, no. Like, he wasn't dead, but he was, st- he was still alive, but uh, there's a picture, and it is really the grimmest thing I've ever seen. It's rough. Like he, they, it's really would, hard to- Shane McGowan, really uh, Camille, he was the lead singer of the Pogues, um, and he's someone who- Oh, that's how, that explains it. People yeah. were pretty confident would die 30 years ago. Um, yeah. and like sure. there was like, I think even a, an official, uh, there's a book that came out like, uh, Shane McGowan is, is not quite dead yet. I think that came out in 2000. <laughs> like is, th- is, yeah. that was yeah. just part of his thing. And so, and you know, his teeth certainly died upon uh, childbirth. Um, and yeah, he had them replaced. <laughs> he had them replaced. Oh, I'm, I'm looking at his mouth now. That yeah, is that's extraordinary. Re- that's the replaced teeth. Yeah, wow! Yeah, that's that's him looking good. He's um, he was. Uh, I I would argue like the most uh, punk rock person um, uh, in punk rock. Like beginning history. the mid, it, no beginning <laughs> the mid eighties. It's like oh, it's, you know Johnny Rotten's clowning around. This person is doing this. Some straight edge guys, and then he shows up playing fucking weird ass Celtic songs and anti war banjo ballads and just screeching and barfing and almost dying. It's like, okay, that's an actual punk yeah. rock person. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was in a punk band, um, initially, uh, called the nipple erectors. Uh, they never really made it. Uh, then when he was in London, despite being Mr. Uh, I- Irish Republican, uh, this is a band in London. And then, you know, the Pogues were great. And then when, um, the great thing is when Shane checked out of the Pogues, cause he was just such a reckless alcoholic. They kicked him out of the a, band. The short, yeah, well, they kicked him out of the band eventually. Yeah, but they there's a short period. There's a funny story about that in Spider Stacy's book about like I think they kicked him out in in, in Japan and they were they like were really nervous and got in the hotel room and like he came in, they fired him. He's like, all right, <laughs> just like walked out. They were like, what? <laughs> Seriously? Um, but yeah, it was replaced for a short period of time by Joe Strummer. Strummer. And if you can find those, there's a bunch of recordings of it where Joe Strummer from the Clash is uh, taking over. Um, also. Um, left us too young. Shane, I wouldn't say left us too young. No. Um, he left us ex- long after we thought he he uh, would expire. But yeah, he died too. Um, wasn't there somebody else? Um, uh, George Santos. Yeah, George Santos. Right. Career. But his career is over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's definitely they kicked him out of Congress. Um, That's pretty crazy. Kicked him out of the sixth ever. And, and that all is the a other building ones full of fucking scumbags. Were too. like, uh, like they actually, you know, fought for the Confederacy. So like, there's <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. They shouldn't stay. They have lots of statues for them, but they shouldn't be in yeah. Congress. <laughs> um, and uh, obviously, the Santos thing 
probably has some pretty major consequences because mm-hmm. that is a fairly competitive seat. It's not at all clear that Republicans will be able to fill it again. No, um, no, and no. Kevin McCarthy has also suggested that he might be leaving, in which case the numbers would the, would be even worse. For no, because he's he represents Bakersfield, and Bakersfield is not going to yeah, vote for yeah. a Democrat. Um, yeah, just like they're not. They're they're going to Bakersfield is where you visit Shane McGowan's dentist. And you vote for yeah. Republicans. <laughs> I yeah. love Bakersfield. That's, that's what, like, Dead, Deadwood is like a current day <laughs> thing in Bakersfield. It's not like an old back in the they, 19th century. That, uh, that town actually has, like, is a top five, are you fucking kidding me, corruption town. Like, the whole uh, district. Police force. The police right? force, the district mm-hmm. attorneys and stuff. There's actually a lot of reason magazine and reason foundation connection with it. Not in any corrupt way at all, but just, like, people happen to be from there or know a lot of people. Uh, and so you, I got some dirt from there, but also friends who worked for the Bakersfield Californian, which was a really good newspaper. It was a you know, top five newspaper in California for a, a good long time. They did great investigative stuff. And it's shocking the level of, of corruption. The Bakersfield DA, a longtime elected guy, was one of the three or four most odious people. He's one of those guys who like was all in on the satanic panic uh, jailed yeah. everybody and then just stayed in office and never apologized. Um, and most people like eventually <laughs> moved on. He's like, nah, I, I got it right. But that's the kind of Santos move, which I really respect in a way. Ne- I mean, never I came apologized. to- Which I, one? The one where he's just running people's credit cards? No, just like, like <laughs> people are like, you are corrupt. And he's like, that's too bad. I'm going to go to work today. <laughs> and I, I kind of appreciate that. But the, I have to say, I have two things to say about this. One is an, an apology Uh-oh. Yeah. to John Fetterman. Uh, dude john fetterman wow. was on the yeah but this is why yeah. and it's not just because he's like going around like waving his really flags just to piss off wearing um, them as capes while like yeah, basically giving the which finger is, which, which you'd expect which is, yeah which is like yeah. kind of hilarious and amazing yeah um but no he was on the view mm-hmm. and he was like actually we've got bigger problems than santos yeah. because his lies were funny which was a great comment and he's like we actually bob menendez is the problem which was oh. a, which was a the correct kind of analysis but my apology to john fetterman is like when he was debating and that whole thing was happening i was like we just have a mentally uh uh, challenged compromised person he's kind Mm -hmm. of fine now Um, i don't know i I suspect they probably gave him direct instructions like don't mention the menez dead thing if you did it would make us look kind of weird because it'd be so hypocritical he's like okay i won't and then he went and did it (laughs) well that's what i suspect because this is too crazy but he's he's fluid. I mean, you can, there's, yeah. you can, there's moments you can see that it's it's a little um, some residual stuff. But he's I never thought he'd recover from that in the way that he has. So I'll give him yeah. credit for that. And um, you know, we said or I said at the time, can't vote for this dude because you know. And then you're like, oh, it's the other option is Doctor Oz. <laughs> so so you know, he's turned out to to have um, snapped out of it. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm impressed and, you know, it's, I'm, I'm glad that he's uh, feeling better. I'd like to. And the additional context there being that Menendez, Bob Menendez, senator from New, New Jersey, Jersey yeah. the Democratic senator from New Jersey. So his colleague. We're from Turkey. Um, sure. pur- purportedly took some money from, uh, from Egypt. Um, Was it Egypt? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So there's some concerns there. And I think the, the quote I'm looking at here is, I think the more important picture is, is that we have a colleague in the Senate that actually does much more sinister and serious kinds of things 
<laughs> true. I mean, I, which is true. Totally true. Wow. He was totally true. The chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I think, right? Or at least- uh, uh, Mendez yeah, was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So not an insignificant personage when it comes to, you know, the kind of guy you want to put a gold fucking brick in his pants. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, the brick is, uh, I got to really respect that too, because it's so fucking old school. He's like, I just want gold. Like, what do you, what do you Peter Schiff? I mean, you're trying to get gold bricks. And like, put it in my pants, the gold bricks. Um, I love that. Yeah, but he's like, he is a guy who has been, who's been through this before, which is the amazing yeah, thing. Yeah, I couldn't believe is it. Is that he's survived. been through corruption scandals before. There was something that, I can't remember what I saw at, at today. And I'm not going to put you on the spot, Camille, because I think you're going to be like me. And if you were questioned on this, you wouldn't know off the top of your head because I didn't. And I was like, wait, what? I don't know. Matt will. But the, mm. I, I didn't realize. I was like, wait, who are the two California senators? Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Well, there's that. Replacement. There's the replacement one who's the black lady, yeah. I think, lesbian yes. fundraiser who lives in yes. Virginia and does abortions. Correct. Um, yeah, she's, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other. Uh, but you're from California. You don't even know her name. Hold on. You? No, God, no. Victoria <laughs> Principal. Uh, yeah, I think it was Victoria. Uh, yeah. I think it was Valerie Bertinelli. <laughs> <laughs> I married Eddie Van Halen. I deserve a Senate seat. I think that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, and then, uh, then the other the one. The other one. Uh, right. Padilla? Right. Is that what it is? Alex. Alex Padilla is yeah. a senator? Exactly. Yeah. See? <laughs> I thought he was like, see? <laughs> Alex fucking yeah, you, you thought he owned like a, a local subway franchise. Who's the yeah. uh, corrupt dickhead who's the uh, head of uh, health and human services now under Biden? Oh, God. I who's love also that guy. a Latino from California, but like, at, like Alex yeah. Padilla is just a machine Democrat, totally corrupt with no talent at all. And like anyone who's covered California politics is like, oh, yeah, this person just actually stinks. It, yeah. It's not full Menendez because Menendez has been been plowing this in these fields for 30 years but like it's 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 pretty bad god one party um, states suck one party yeah. states suck i have a question for you moynihan you're uh you've yeah. expressed uh you know strange respect for uh, uh george santos um and uh i mean not as a politician no no yeah. just yeah, like as someone like never apologized like the next the, you open the paper in the morning i'm like oh my god he's in drag now it's like yeah this guy's awesome yeah it's like he did do a great mic drop did you see this when he left the left the congress he's like you know oh no what did he do uh, something along driving. the lines of this uh, tweet from someone about this but like uh like he just uh, like turned and said you know i'm I'm sick of this place. Uh, I'm, I'm like, I'm out of here. And like wa- walked <laughs> yeah, off. Like just, just yeah, did, no, I'm breaking is. up with you. <laughs> just did the heel turn, which is fantastic. Um, yeah. No, you yeah. can't fire me. I quit. Yeah, I that's, quit. But no, the, the brazenness, never apologize, look in the camera and lie and smile and smile and lie. It's, um, it's really something. Did you watch yeah. Gavin Newsom debate Ron DeSantis? Because that's oh, what he man. did over and over and over and over and over and over again. It was amazing so to watch. Here's here. Did you watch the whole thing? I watched the whole thing. Yeah, I did. Okay. So yeah, I, have some I, questions I watched for you. nearly all of it. I watched I've, clips. I've read a bunch of coverage about it. Yeah, so, I can't. Yeah. So I got questions for both of you because mm-hmm. I, okay. I could watch a couple of clips <laughs> and I was just like, these, this fucking country, what is this? this country. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's like the state versus state. It's Florida versus California coming up next. It's like, a wrestling match and i was like okay i'll watch maybe a portion of it in the morning i couldn't get through much of it but yeah. I, my question 
the starting question is this. Why? I, I was Gavin, was it was Gavin Newsom who's provoked this, right? It was his idea. Yeah, he, yeah. Suge- he, he suggested, suggested it, right? it. Yeah. And now, then when, when, when DeSantis said he would do it, he, he, he started fucked. trolling him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he, he started like, trolling him immediately. Like, why would you agree to this? Yeah, yeah. Well, aren't you yeah. supposed to be running for president? I'm not running for anything. What are you doing? Yeah, well, it, what like, a loser. It, and then he still shows up. I mean, look at, at least DeSantis says he's running for president. I mean, <laughs> yeah, obviously Gavin, Gavin is. Admit it. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing that I wonder about this. When he was like, I can't believe you agree to this. I think that was probably him pissing his pants in a way. Because it's very hard to go up against um, somebody like Ron DeSantis, because it's the thing that people, the mistake that people make when they I, they hate somebody so much that they can't realize mm-hmm. that he's actually pretty good at this. Um, and especially when you take everybody else off the stage and it's just a one-on-one thing. If you saw his debates <coughs> in the last two races when they're one-on-one, he's pretty good at it, right? And when you're, this is what I don't get about this. You are the governor of what has become the shittiest state in American history, <laughs> it's really gone down the tubes. If like, I was talking to our, our friend Alex about this, who lives in LA. And it's like, you you have a skid row and it's like, like it's like really a skid row. Like we have Hell's Kitchen and it's really nice. Yeah. Because it used to be Hell's Kitchen. In Boston, we had a place called the Combat Zone and now it's like like high rise apartments. Skid yeah. row in LA is like fucking skid row. It's, it's like consistently, still, it's consistently terrible. And that skid is yeah. worse than it's ever been. <laughs> it's it's so and you know when when he goes on the attack this is the stuff that i saw so you can fill me in and tell me if i if i missed any any you know good repost from um from governor uh governor gavin but he's like your state is a mess and yeah you have poop apps in uh, san francisco to plot all the poo and everyone's homeless <laughs> and everyone's leaving it's like okay that's a pretty good one uh now over to you <laughs> like <laughs> how did he handle that i mean matt you saw it all i, I, I watched most of it I, I mean gavin newsom is a slippery motherfucker he is he so like, i so slippery so like grotesquely handsome yeah. Um, <laughs> no, he's just grotesque. Uh, Matt wants to make yeah. love to No, he's him. like, yeah. he is, um, uh, not a close second, but he's definitely in second place of like, uh, American politicians who I just loathe to the core of my being and, uh, and mm-hmm. like whose existence depresses me. And I found myself like I was watching the debate and I was interested in it for the usual reasons, but also like. I mean, part of it, like uh, our friend and my colleague Nick Gillespie has uh, has said previously, like this is the debate that America should be having, or you know, these are the candidates that would make more sense because it's they're actually would articulate different visions of how things are governed. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that's that's probably true in some yeah. parallel universe. In some parallel universe where people give in. a shit about any of this stuff. Um, I mean, yep. in, in fairness, it did get pretty good ratings. Uh, got like five million uh, views uh, mm-hmm. uh, viewers which is more than a lot of the other Hannity things have done. So people were kind of interested in it. Um, But uh, what was depressing to watch in real time was not just Newsom himself, (laughs) just sort of smiling and lying and deflecting, uh, like really trying to make some kind of case that more people have been moving from Florida to California than California to Florida. It's just like, there's no universe in which that isn't crazy bullshit. And it's like I think, ba- it, I it's think like it was, it was a per capita. Yeah. It was a per capita claim. <laughs> I think yeah. that's what he was it trying just, to do. None of it. None of it works, and, and none yeah. of it was responsive it to the framing. And actually, uh, I won't say necessarily that Hannity did a great job, but I, I think he did a decent job. But his staff did a fantastic job 
Um, I mean, it was loaded mm-hmm. against Newsom, but that's fine. It's on Fox News and you kind of expect that. Um, but they threw a bunch of facts and said, hey, respond to this fact. These facts about your state or the facts about the comparative rates in COVID deaths or in population mm-hmm. leaving mm-hmm. and respond to them. And, and Newsom was so spectacularly non-responsive. But what was really depressing was not that just that he was doing that and that Ron DeSantis, you know, I spent a lot of time watching him thinking, God, you know, it'd be great is if Nikki Haley was on stage defending Ron DeSantis's record because he she'd do mm-hmm. a lot much better job than he does. He does. I think he that's does right. that horrible fake smile problem that he has. And it was so it's weird. So weird. It's, it's like a human meme generator. But no, it was the reaction of people on Twitter. I almost never do the sort of I'm going to go live tweet, but I didn't have any real responsibilities um, besides just sort of watching it so that we could talk about it. Um, so I was kind of tw- tweeting and looking at people's um, uh, feeds and I'm from California as previously mentioned. And just to see a bunch of people from California kind of like fist pumping and high five. Oh, I got a good one there. It's the it's like, Dude, he's thing. fucking lying. He's lying. <laughs> yeah. He tried to say to DeSantis, you um, uh, were the lockdown governor. No, 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 no. This clip I watched. This is the most amazing thing. This is the most amazing thing. I, and I want everyone to go and watch this. It's too long to actually insert here into the podcast, and we won't, we won't bore you with that. But there is that moment where he starts, and this is like full, confused Baghdad Bob moment. Where he's like, are you are the COVID man. It's like, what are you fucking talking about? He starts by, by saying criticizing him for being too Fauci-like. Yeah. He's like, yeah. you listen to Fauci. I'm like, wait, is that Gavin Newsom? <clears throat> and he's like, you know who says that? Also, Donald Trump. And you were the worst because you believed the science. And, and this is great. <laughs> he says believing the science no. as a criticism. Well, no, he says you believe the science and then you decided to follow your party. You used to right. trust the yes. science. You used to trust Fauci. Even Trump has knocked you for if it. You, and then you started being bad and telling lies. But if you, that, Camille, is a very good transition. That's not what happened. If you watch him do this, yeah. he's like going in and he sounds <laughs> like he's a host on Newsmax. And then all of a yeah. sudden he's like, everyone died in your state and you should have done more. And I'm like, wait, what is happening here? <laughs> who is, who is talking now? Yeah. I thought that was, that was, that I think, was uh, I think interesting. And like, I, did he do, do it? If he did a terrible job in responding to that, that surprised me. Cause that's his, that's his strong suit. That, that it just was, it was not a great performance for, uh, for Ron last night from my standpoint. And, and look, I mean, this is the thing, whatever, I think the best moment Gavin had, like the moment that probably seared the most, um, was when he says, "Look, neither one of us are going to be president. Yeah. Like you're not, you're yeah. not going to win anything. What yeah. are you even doing here? Yeah, like, yeah. Like you are doing this. It, it's a bizarre situation. This, this weird. This may be the closest we get to having a Republican and a Democrat debate. Correct. Because yeah. when if yeah. Trump secures the nomination and isn't in prison, and Biden survives long enough." Like we'll probably get to November of next year. The two of them will never share a stage. And this is it. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why people managed to tune in last night. And I think, by the way, that this hurts Donald Trump in one way, is that when I was watching this, I thought that too. I was like, look, maybe this is not the debate we want, uh, you know, per Nick or we deserve. Um, but it is a debate. And you know what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a debate between two very different ideologies, not like degrees of Nikki versus Vivek and there's <laughs> personal hatred that animates it more than ideological hatred. And we're not going to get that. And I think that watching that, I think there's some people watching that because I'm certainly one of them that is annoyed at Donald Trump's no show. 
is annoyed that there's not going to be a Biden-Trump debate. And I guarantee you that there won't be. I'll, I, I'll probably eat my words on that. And there'll, there'll be something that will, will create that debate, but it doesn't look like it right now. And it makes you annoyed that these are our two fucking candidates because these guys, for whoever wins or loses that debate, it, at least it was a debate and it actually was. And there was some, some substantial uh, ideas exchange that I saw. There's some, some substantial bullshit, which of course you yeah, get in debates. That. But mm-hmm. that's always going to be the case. Um, <clears throat> yeah. But it, it felt more, and that's, I, maybe that's why Matt sent around the numbers. Almost 5 million people watched that and the, the, the Trump town halls were at like 2 point something million. It was a half the viewership. Maybe yeah. people really are, you know, look, we'll vote for Trump or we'll vote for Biden if we have to. But maybe people are kind of hungering for that. And it's just these, the Democratic Party leadership, in particular the Democratic Party leadership, that is preventing that from happening on, on, on that side. Um, on the Republican side, it's, I think, a, a different problem, but still a problem. It's just such a bad week for Ron, though, because even this week, uh, I saw the news that the chairman of the Never Back Down PAC has um, stepped down a uh, day after <laughs> the CEO left. I mean, that's the, the news has not been good for him. No. Nikki Haley has had a pretty good week, although the news hasn't been good for anyone else um, on that side either. I think Chris Christie is in jeopardy of missing the next debate. Uh, and Vivek had one of his lead policy people on his campaign defect and go to work for Trump. So oh, like, things are pretty bleak for all of those people. The only person who's who's seemingly on the rise is Nikki, and she doesn't seem to be rising fast She's enough. She's not rising fast enough, no. I mean, this is, it, this, it ran, when it rains, it pours in campaigns like this. I mean, they just start defecting, and the thing starts falling apart really quickly. It's never like a slow decline. It's like, you know, it's the space shuttle just blows up, and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> and that's kind of what's happening here, but it's, you know, Christy missing the next debate. I, you know, I'm, I'm sad for that just because, you know, he brings a little... A uh, bit of energy that a lot of the others don't have. Vivek has fake energy. He's an, he's just annoying. Um, but you know the whole uh, modus operandi for for his existence it just fell apart when Trump didn't want to participate. The entire reason he knows he's not going to win. He just wanted to get up there and take some pot shots at Trump. And there's no Trump to take pot shots at him. So I mean, might as well go home at this point. I think that Vivek is also playing the uh, Trump insurance card. Um, kind of like what yeah. Gavin Newsom is doing, but without Gavin actually being in the race. Um, Vivek is, if Trump goes away, um, Trump voters are going to need to find a home. And um, mm-hmm. they flirted with Ron DeSantis for a while, but maybe Ron DeSantis decides to go away. I, at this point, I'm rooting for him to go away. I, I want there to be, because I think that, uh, Nikki Haley and, and like last night really underscored this, that even though I uh, prefer DeSantis on uh, certainly all of his COVID policies and quite a few other policies and approaches as, as well. Um, he's not a great candidate right now. Um, and he's also bad on some other stuff that I care about that wasn't really talked about too much. Um, and I think that his abortion uh, stance is not a sellable, winnable thing, um, nor is it yeah. something that I agree with um, yeah. uh, nationwide. So um, if, and since I'm not a Republican, uh, and I don't want Donald Trump to win and Donald Trump's super popular and powerful. I want it to be, uh, I want to get to the, get to the chorus as soon as possible. The chorus is, um, you know, get Chris Christie the fuck out of here. He's got no, no fucking path at all. <laughs> Zero, right? You need the only chance that Trump is not going to win. And it's, it's so slim that it's almost ridiculous is if everyone gets out, um, except for Nikki Haley, 
Um, and Vivek will just stay there because Trump can get struck, struck by lightning or wake up one morning and fart and decide he's not going to run. And that energy has to go somewhere and he's all too ready and he doesn't have a political career um, like to worry about uh, or, you know, he, he can't he's not going to be like waiting another four years or eight years or something like that. His shot is now. Um, I don't think he's going to ripen with age. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you can easily see a three way race. Um, where Vivek is gets very little, but still enough, um, to, uh, to make it impossible for Nikki Haley to compete against Trump, but anyone else staying in the race at this point is just, um, you're seeing the same thing that happened with fucking John Kasich last time. And Ted Cruz, like the only way that you could have stopped Trump and you couldn't have, I don't think, um, but it would have been is if a, someone who, who's, you know, a politician who could sniff the white house you know, can realize that they should probably step out. No, I mean, like, imagine the crazy power aphrodisiac, speaking of Henry Kissinger, um, that must be when you can sort of, like, torture your own brain to make you think, like, you might have a chance to become the fucking president of the United States. You're not going to get out of the race. Um, it's it's pretty rare mm -hmm. to do that. And so people are going to make the same damn mistake as they did in 2016. It's hilarious. Where are you, Mike Huckabee? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I really wish Herman Cain was alive. So we get 777, but was that what it was? 777? 999, sorry. Yeah. I wish Ben Carson two, two, was 227 two, two, with Marla Gibbs. That's racist. <laughs> that was, That's <laughs> this is my 227 plan. 2% <laughs> flat tax, seven of my friends working for me. <laughs> Godfather Pizza. <laughs> oh, that's Godfather right. He was Godfather pizza. pizza. Yeah. Yeah. I love Herman Cain. I, I love all these. Whatever happened to Alan Keyes and his lesbian daughter? Mm. <laughs> remember he got, remember his daughter came out and he was like, I disown you. That, do you remember that? God, Alan, remember that. Yeah. Alan he Keyes had a lesbian daughter. <laughs> that he disowned while he was running? He disowned because she was like, my dad is horrible. And she was right. He is horrible. And I think that, by the way, <laughs> wait a second. This this is, I need a fact check on uh -oh. this, Camille. I think you're in front of your computer. I'm, I'm, I'm wrong in front of our computer. But you're yeah, going to yeah. say, no, here's a fact check that I need. Am I wrong in thinking that Alan Keyes um, had a show on MSNBC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, mm -hmm. he did? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if that, like he's so like he was so like a really extreme guy. So yeah, yeah. Tucker Carlson, yeah. Alan yeah. Keys, so. Alan Keys is making sense. Yeah. Making sense. Yeah. That's his right. TV show. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> he's making sense about lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different MSNBC. Um, Alan Keys is clean and articulate. By the way, speaking of old MSNBC yeah. hosts, uh, Camille, didn't you tell me that uh, Tucker Carlson? Um, in the podcast said like, you know, I really like Joe Scarborough, but I think he murdered somebody. <laughs> Didn't he say that? Or like he was on yeah, he was on Dave Smith's podcast. But which he said like making some news because uh they both uh besmirched uh prominent conservative Bill Buckley. Uh, it's so bizarre. William, I just don't, William F. Buckley, I, which I, I mean it. Tucker was a William F. Buckley guy. So I'm not quite His sure. His brother's how this name washes. is Buckley, by the way. Yeah, and they didn't explain yeah. any of that I don't stuff. Know if that's but relevant, but <laughs> but while talking about that, he he went on to say something about how Joe Scarborough. He was discussing how Joe Spar Scarborough is crazy now, and he said, you know, I I liked him when we were working together, yeah. but uh, you know, a lot of people. Apparently there were some rumors about him maybe having murdered someone, but I didn't. I didn't know anything about that. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm just surface these right now. But a lot I, of people I believed it. Yeah, know, but I don't know. Yeah, a lot of people. He seemed like it. a good guy to me. So, yeah, I don't know if he murdered somebody, <laughs> but I liked him. That's I don't hilarious. have an opinion on that. Yeah, 
Yeah. And if, nor if, do I, by, by the way, nor do I understand his um, like, like very strenuous agreement with the idea that William F. Buckley was one of the most evil oh, people. Was I can't remember the exact gleeful thing. giggle. He was like, it delighted. was, he looked like he was having a stroke. Yeah. It was very strange. Yeah. He was like screaming, <laughs> like cackling in the camera. But, but yeah, I don't understand that, that, um, and maybe there was some part of that where it was explained, but I didn't, I didn't see or hear anything about them sort of detailing the case against William F. Buckley, even think, the libertarian case against William F. Buckley. The reality is that people's views change and Buckley's views continue to evolve over the course of his life. And sure. by the time he died, he was, hell of a lot more libertarian yeah, than most conservatives. So. Yeah. He was anti-Iraq war. And as I sent you guys that cover of that collection of his essays, and it was like, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know something like, what is it? Uh, reflections uh, from a libertarian journalist. And he would call himself that sometimes. Um, and he's, he was like a big Albert J. Nock fan. I mean, he's, he's a really interesting guy. And you can disagree with him. Um, but I, I don't, I truly, I'm not, I'm not being like glib about this and, and being sarcastic. I truly can't understand what the case would be that he was one of the most evil people of the 20th century. One of century. the greatest villains of the 20th century. Vill- is, greatest uh, villains of the 20th century. Is that the quote? That's the Dave Jeez. Smith quote. Yeah, that seems like I mean, a he's lot, not but... even top 2000. I mean, I don't, even if you didn't like him, I don't understand. Open up, uh, of the phone book in Cambridge, Massachusetts and yeah, yeah, do a better yeah, job yeah. of finding a 20th century villain. <laughs> do a better job of finding than, a, uh, Bill a, a Buckley. Villain, yeah. I, I don't, I don't speaking, it, but... speaking of even Ill, evil villains though. Well, actually, Matt, you were going to say something about Buckley, but I do want to get back to Kissinger because that's oh, one yeah, villain yeah. Uh, who everyone I'll hates. Just say about Buckley that, um, uh, and, and the formulation of greatest villains. We have lists of, of villains who, uh, yes. wield power and murder people. M- one of Moynihan's uh, favorite quotes is when Buckley ran for for mayor uh, yeah. uh, in New York and uh, said the first thing he would do if he won is demand a recount. He wasn't interested yeah. in yeah. amassing, I mean, he did amass. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't interested in having influence on the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Oh my God, yes. He policed that shit. Um, he created- Which he did. I mean, he, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I'm, okay, by the way, that maybe is the thing. I don't know if it's, if it's the exiling, it wouldn't be the exiling of the Birchers, but it was maybe- Pushing out libertarians. Uh, well, it was pu- pushing out particularly Pat Buchanan. Mm-hmm. And it was um, a, a, a very long piece that he wrote about Joe Sobran, who's totally forgotten about. It was a guy who wrote for, um, he was quite a good writer, um, but he he ended up getting very close to what would now be called alt-right politics and anti-Semitic stuff too. I mean, like legitimately, it was writing for magazines that were- uh, you know, really swimming in those fever swamps. But Buckley uh, wrote a very long cover story for National Review. And people took that as him writing Pat Buchanan out of the movement, which he couldn't do at that point. You know, Pat Buchanan, you know, ran for president in 92. It was an MSNBC guy. I mean, when he was younger, a little younger and a little healthier, he was he was still a voice. He was, you know, uh, doing Crossfire, et cetera. But he did, maybe that would be, the thing, I mean, I can imagine disagreeing with that. I don't know if that would qualify as one of the 20th century's greatest villains, but um, I mean, there's but yeah, plenty, maybe that was. There it. were plenty of things to disagree uh, about, and I've, and I'm sure all of us have written sure. things in vehement disagreement with William F. Buckley, and it, it was never or written things that we now disagree with. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Which I've done a lot of, uh, and I never liked this sort of East Coast fake accent shit. That's why I hang out with Michael Moynihan, apparently. Um, but. Uh, uh, you know, he was uh, during the civil rights movement. I don't think he uh, was particularly great. Um, 
but from a lib- like like but from like the hardcore like Lou Rockwell libertarian's perspective, he was uh, he was on the right side of that, right? right. Because I mean, which I'm not he made on that. A sort of, I'm not on that. Yeah, I'm not either. So, but he made like the state's rights argument on that. Yeah, and stuff that you know that, that, you know, that he most recently about, ran um, Paul in the made, South African the context that, that, that like, well, do we really want um, to give like one mm-hmm. vote um, to one? And it got him in some adult, trouble, but you know, but beyond that, I mean, he did kind of he did go back on that. Yeah, he did, and and ran he revisited or or Buckley. No, 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 Rand uh, Buckley, Buckley yeah. did. Yeah. Uh, but he was. I think they both kind of did. He was constantly yeah. uh, checking himself and adapting, and and he was incredibly productive and interesting. Incredibly. Always, always, always interesting. I remember being at the National Magazine Awards, um, judging about fifteen years ago, and there's a great piece by Sam Tannenhaus, who's just sort of like he, Sam Tannenhaus can't He's writing a book on cannot him, yeah. finish his book about Bill Buckley. And it's a piece he did. For, Apparently, it's coming out next year. That's what I heard. Uh, I mean, it was coming out soon when I was reading this this piece, and it was for the Yale Alumni Magazine, and it was sort of about his yeah. time at Yale. And of course, he famously wrote "God and Man" at Yale when he was like twelve years old, um, and like was <laughs> writing defenses of Joseph McCarthy in real time. Uh, and then starts National Review. He's just a very interesting. Which, by the way, I want to say is not. It's called a book called that he wrote with Brent Bozell called McCarthy and His Enemies, which is not as bad as it sounds. Actually, it sounds like it's just a uh, you know apologia for Joe McCarthy. It's a little more um, nuanced than that, and takes on the sort of media coverage of McCarthy. And it's actually a pretty interesting book when you go back and read it. I mean, there's plenty of problems with it, but it's but it was a pretty interesting time capsule book. The thing about it, and, and I think this is the thing that I care about, and it's very fashionable to take the opposite position of this, and, and, and was in his lifetime, and less so now because people care less, is that Bill Buckley was a very good writer. Yes. And he was a very funny writer. Um, and people forget that. And he hated writing. He was very open about the fact that he hated writing, but the most prolific, I mean, he wrote 40, 50 books. All kinds of he novels. Wrote, you know, spy, spy novels, novels. Uh, some of which were kind of well-reviewed. Blackford Oaks was the name of the character, which, by the way, was it was a specific uh, creation as in, a, in response to John le Carre of the mm. sort of moral ambiguity of the Cold War. He said, no, there's good guys and there's bad guys, and we're the good guys, and we're gonna, I'm going to write those novels where we're the good guys. Um, again, maybe that was what offends uh, uh, people um, who maybe didn't like his, I don't know, foreign policy, but the foreign policy stuff was was very conflicted at times. And it was, so, and it was, it was, it was all a product of the Cold War, and after the end of the Cold War, he, For sure. he changed his mind about it. I mean, him leaving National Review is actually a pretty interesting story, and I forget who wrote it. I think there's a New York Times Magazine piece in the early aughts uh, about that. And part of it was his sort of quietly um, not digging where National Review was going. I mean, if you had a real beef with someone at National Review, and if you're coming from an anti-war perspective, um, there are a couple of great candidates for that. And I wonder if this is being transposed at this point. But David Frum, um, he really did write the the cover story called Unpatriotic Conservatives in 2003 or 2002, in which he very, uh, in, a, in a moment of triumphalism, um, uh, tried to write out the anti-war libertarian right and then sort of the paleoconservative right uh, about their opposition to the Iraq war. It's like, it's time, they, you know, they've mm-hmm. all come to hate their country and we need to like, just like say good riddance mm-hmm. to all of them. It's not a good piece. 
Um, there's a lot of bad pieces going around there in those days. Norman Podhoritz's World War Four for Commentary Magazine was particularly fantastic. Old uh, What's-His-Face, whose name I'm even blanking on now, which is a good sign. Um, but he was writing a lot of uh, big uh, cover <laughs> stories for Weekly Standard. And he's now an anti-never-Trumper uh, um, who's becoming quasi-democratic and wears a stupid fedora. What's his name, Moynihan? Uh, Max Boot. Max Boot, yeah. Um, so a lot of these sort of big thunderists were going to drive the anti-war people out. Um, and, you know, I have my quibbles with the anti-war people in that sector. We've uh, talked about it a lot and I've argued with them publicly and privately yeah, yeah. for a really long time. But there was something gross about that kind of thing. It was like we only 98 percent of conservatives are agreeing with George W. Bush's foreign policy in 2002. Let's fucking go after that other two percent. And they, I yeah. think, were wrong on policy and on on that Thing. But that wasn't William F. Buckley. William F. Buckley left the magazine at this time because it didn't feel very congenial for him anymore. And by the way, he was also in well, favor keeping, of legalizing keeping in mind when, shit. Yeah. And he gave um, a v- very early cover, cover stories to people like David Bradnoy writing about gay marriage and others writing about gay marriage. Um, and he was he was a very, very hardcore Catholic, too, but allowed that in the magazine and, and liked that sort of debate. And was very close with people like John Kenneth Galbraith and people that he really, really disagreed with politically that became very close friends. I mean, that was that was his kind of friend group. And I mean, I find that interesting because I I am there there is a there is a thing now where you're like you break with the people from your past, and that'd be Tucker breaking from all the Weekly Standard people and you know, hating Bill Crystal, and which I understand because he's like seems to be a totally different person at this point. But um and you know, I know that people would say, like, oh well, he was bad then. Just like he's just become like just seems like to become a Democrat when somebody was a professional conservative for so long. I just find that very odd. But uh, that kind of thing is very common now. These are the evil guys. It's a very it's the way from handled um the the kind of paleo right and the anti-war right it's like i see that now of like tucker being like oh these are the worst people ever it's like you're just doing exactly what they did yeah um and you should take a page out of bill buckley's book and just be friends with these people and actually have conversations with them um you know and that's uh, we, we were talking before we started with you know um my friend noam dorman and you guys know noam too, too who did the norman finkelstein thing and people gave him a hard time about it it's like, oh, don't platform St. Finkelstein. He's a, he's a bad guy and everything. And Noam couldn't be more opposite to, to Finkelstein in every, every way. But, you know, after they did the recording, he said, come down to the restaurant and let me buy you a meal and we'll all. And they hung out. He said he had a great time. He says, really, really interesting. And like, just a, he was like, a, he was a nice guy and they had a, a good, and he's coming back to do another episode. And that's just because it's not people screaming at each other and saying, we have to write you out of polite society. You're radioactive. And, and, and one other thing to say um, uh, about Buckley is that he grew up as, in a very, very isolationist household. His father was a very famous America firster. Um, and that's, you know, the original America firsters. Um, the the non-interventionists and, and people who didn't want to uh, intervene in the Second World War, which, by the way, before 1939, middle of 1939, was a majority of Americans. Uh, FDR after, ran on that as a as a policy. yeah. I mean, after after um, you know World War One, there wasn't a lot of hunger uh, to get back into a bloody war in Europe. But but his father was a was a huge and and and, and Buckley. Uh, grew up and you know cut his teeth when he was a young kind of interested guy when he's reading Albert J. Nock and stuff as as 
in anti-interventionist, very, very strong anti-interventionist. So it, I just don't understand it at all. I mean, maybe there's, a, I can go back and I don't know if that point, the clip that I saw it meandered somewhere else. So I don't know what, what, uh, where it went. But anyway, speaking of people um, that everyone loves to hate, Henry Kissinger. Yeah, Henry Kissinger. At, at the risk of making this a completely um, foreign policy back half of the podcast here, yeah. Henry Kissinger. But by the way, we, have, yeah. we haven't talked about Israel at all. I was all, gonna say, so. I, 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 <laughs> know, I know that that's coming. Because oh no, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't have to. Doesn't <laughs> have to. Eh, we'll see. Have to. I suspect we'll get there. Um, but yeah, Henry Kissinger um, is dead, and many, many, many people um, were tweeting gleefully uh, that he is dead because he is reportedly a major war criminal. I've been eager to hear your respective takes on this. Um, as you both know, uh, Nixon and Ford administration is the former mm -hmm. Secretary of State um, and uh, I guess National Security Advisor, but has also just been a fixture of American politics for decades now. Um, mm -hmm. and has been both loved and hated and revered in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. An interesting um, guy on, on a bunch of different levels. I'm curious what your uh, your perspectives are on the the response to his passing. I mean, I'm I'm shocked yeah. that it hasn't been more gleeful. <laughs> um, there's a there's an element to which, and I think uh, some people who I otherwise normally will disagree with on some things are on on to something when they say that Glenn Greenwald. I think had a uh, um, had a point which is basically he's the e he's the easiest person to hate in American foreign policy, um, and uh, maybe Dick Cheney. Um, like his one tenth of that, and he used to be an object of hate. I don't think people really care about him anymore. Richard, not Richard Nixon, but uh, Henry Kissinger had um, just an incredible, huge, uh, a practical effect on American foreign policy for a really long time because he was doing it. He was he was the uh, national security advisor and secretary of state at the same time. He was kind of just sort of running things, uh, American foreign policy for I don't know what Moynihan would say, but like five years, like it was just. He was doing it, you know, uh, more than anyone else. He was directing it um, at a very tumultuous time when there was a lot of bad shit going down, including stuff that America was was doing. But he was also this intellectual guy. I mean, his Metternich book is as influential of uh, of any kind of foreign policy book over the last seventy years in in American foreign policy. And his book, diplomacy, and too, diplomacy, yeah. right? And and his stupid Kissinger and Associates just still was there and managed to influence people. So um, it's very, and because he's like this cartoonishly repulsive figure, like physically, like he just always, even when he was in the, in the prime of his youth um, and he would talk about how power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, you just imagined him aphrodisiacing and he's, you know, you just start vomiting yeah. as, as a reflex. Um, all of this was just this, he, he was uh, an obvious grotesque to point and blame. There is um, some really uh, point and blameable stuff, and you know, go read Christopher Hitchens' the trials, the trial versus a trial against Henry Kissinger. I forget what exactly what it's called. Trials of the Henry trials Kissinger. of Henry Kissinger, which yeah. is it's a bit of an arch book. It's like, oh, I'm going to the next. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, his, court it, of the it, Kissinger is, accused him of being a Holocaust denier, and then Christopher said, "I'm going to sue you." Yeah. Um, so there was there was the personal animosity was very very deep there and wouldn't be in the same room. And I think there were some examples in times in which um, 
uh, one or the other. I think I, I, the Kissinger left something of Christopher's because Christopher was it, there, always going to be. It's there. a great book. It's slim and and like go check it out if you want yeah. if you want the brief against it. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it, it's kind of funny. There was a time in which people were convincing themselves that Henry Kissinger was afraid to set foot in you know a half a dozen countries because at any given yeah. time he was going to be nabbed and put on uh, trial in the Hague, which I think was a kind of a, a silly. Uh, pipe dream, but there's a there is a way in which he's an easy. I did happen to Pinochet though, huh? who was nabbed. Um, so yeah, I think he, and and that was it's one of people's main um, complaints is I would say Cambodia. I mean the East Timor East stuff Timor. people don't really know about, but but uh, Cambodia and and um, uh, Chile too. From, those are the those are the two that most people. Sorry. From my perspective, and Moynihan will have a better, more uh, full take on it, but. Um, the thing that he did was to make realism uh, radioactive. Uh, his version of mm-hmm. realism included, and this is a very contentious time in international policy making and, and thinking. Um, he actually, I mean, realism as a as an approach makes a lot of sense. It makes more sense the older I get, which is to say the world is a fallen place. Um, uh, you know, uh, you're going to be disappointed if if you believe that the great things are going to happen everywhere. So um, let's deal with the world as it exists, as opposed to try to reshape it necessarily, or or like to expect it to be better than it is. And the unit of dealing with this stuff is the nation state or whatever. It's the sovereign country uh, level, and usually the great powers within the sovereign country. Um, he did that um, and did that for good and for ill. Um, but uh, in that process, he was incredibly contemptuous of people who um, cared about or talked about human rights and individual rights mm-hmm. in countries. And what's interesting to me is that the human rights people and the realists and the, the uber hawks, which he wasn't, that's not exactly the best way to describe him as a hawk, even though he's got no, blood on his hands. No. Um, but um uh, all of those people need each other in American foreign policy making in ways that they never really acknowledge, um, which is to say, like, uh, you know, most Republicans and conservatives, and I presume Henry Kissinger without having the record like um, in my left hand, were against the Helsinki Accords in the mid 70s, which binded, uh, at least according to, you know, some worthless piece of paper the communist bloc to respecting human rights. They're like, oh, well, what is this like hippie crap? Stop it. Those things ended up having incredible amounts of potency, uh, especially among the dissident movement in uh, communist Europe. Uh, and I'm glad that they existed. And I think that the hippies are right about that. The Carter hippies, uh, speaking of, you know, someone else is going to die next, you know, Tuesday, um, uh, I think had a point there. And you have to ground, especially in the making and the selling of American foreign policy. The American public has a gene within it that wants to be idealistic about foreign policy. Henry Kissinger was contemptuous of that idealism. There's reasons to be because that idealism goes to terrible, stupid places, the League of Nations, um, some of the uh, Woodrow Wilson policymaking, a bunch of other things that have that happened besides uh, neoconservatism is, was idealistic uh, at, at heart, uh, liberal internationalism, um, you know, the responsibility to protect as uh, the left of center kind of doctrine, um, all those things are kind of idealistic and um, they create their own problems. They become overly interventionists and and they get detached from the reality. Um, all that is true, but Americans still want to believe that we are the good guys helping the good guys. 
um, and to be utterly contemptuous of of looking for good guys and trying to help them out or at least sympathizing with them um, is ultimately counterproductive um, and it leads you to immoral places. And I think that's the that's what happened with Kissinger and through his putting his finger in in all the pies of the world um, in different ways or just like turning a, a cold shoulder to like horrible things that were kind of happening on his watch. Mm-hmm. He made that kind of realism radioactive for a generation uh, really as an intellectual pursuit, even though functionally a lot of American foreign policy was still kind of being conducted in that vein, but I'll cede the floor. Um, yeah, I mean, I, just, I, I try to be very brief about this, but I mean, I think the reaction, uh, first of all is, you know, a number of people who don't really know anything, um, knowing that this is the person you celebrate mm-hmm. when they die. I mean, there's been, a long lead up to this, our dear friend Ben Dreyfus had a very, had a very funny, contentious uh, Twitter exchange with a bunch of people, like basically people on the left. And he's like, you know, why are you so excited? And someone tell me why everyone's so excited about him dying. Like it's just a kind of straightforward Ben mm-hmm. kind of question. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone was like, how, do you, how dare you not know the butcher <laughs> of this and the butcher? It's like, all right, well, you guys have gone too far. I am not in any way a Henry Kissinger fan. In any way. Um, I, I, the, the contempt is different from, from me. I just, but the, the sense that like, these people come out and say, there's no greater war criminal of the 20th century than Henry Kissinger. And you know, if, if you read, if they read a lot about Kissinger, they would understand that Kissinger did a lot of things. It took a lot of positions that I suspect that they would like. When it came to Israel, for instance, um, a German Jew who was not Israel's best friend at a lot of uh, points in, in his career. But, you know, I mean, when it comes to uh, Russia, I imagine the people, a lot of the people that loathe uh, Henry Kissinger are probably okay with his, not, not a fan of Ukraine as an independent country. As it were, I mean, he changed a little bit when it came, when it was, after it was invaded, but he was very nice to Putin. He was very very nice to uh, the Chinese at the time of Tiananmen, and said, "Well, you know, what would you do if people were gathering in that way in your country?" He's like, "I don't know, not shoot them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How about that as a starter?" So, <laughs> like, he took a lot of the realist position that was so cold mm-hmm. and so calculating that it forgot that there were humans involved, and that's, I think, one of the the biggest uh, problems. There's other stuff that I think is wildly inflated. There's this quote that goes around, and, and someone explained to me that the reason a lot of people go crazy about Henry Kissinger, I think, I think Hitch had a lot to do with it, but it's also Anthony Bourdain. And Anthony Bourdain had a quote oh, yeah. uh, that, is, that, that was widely uh, circulated and was being posted by everybody yesterday. And it was something about like what a piece of shit um, uh, Henry Kissinger is, and it, and it's and there's a part of it because about Cambodia that is incredibly dumb, and I tend to forget that Anthony Bourdain um, played a smart guy on TV, but actually said things were quite stupid often. And there's no the Khmer Rouge doesn't exist in in Anthony Bourdain's telling, but there is an old argument. And this is the argument that William Shawcross and Peter Rodman and those guys get in William Shawcross's book, uh, Sideshow, which he's actually moved on in a lot of ways, uh, that basically said that the only reason that Cambodia was the hellscape that it was was because of the secret bombing of Cambodia, which was ordered and created by Henry Kissinger. Um, that is not true as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, uh, 
there's a lot there's, there's a we can do a whole show on that which would be really interesting actually <laughs> if we do like just a narrative show about how that uh bombing of cambodia and laos happened and and why it did and um what the consequences of it were was it moral was it just i don't think it was for some reasons and i just think the overstatement is quite big when it comes to things that that guys like um bourdain uh stupidly say i think it was i think it's actually quite a a a, a silly quote and the, the same thing is true of 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 um uh, uh the pinochet allende stuff that was that's one that i'll never win that argument with people because they just don't want to listen to anything beyond that we engineered the coup um that uh you know unseated the democratically elected government of chile and i that's i i have i that's not right you know, I think there's a there, we were involved in lots of ways in lots of things. There's also an apocryphal quote that keeps on coming up in all these these um, um, Kissinger obituaries, which I think I've tr- finally traced back to um, um, Cy Hirsch, <laughs> who wrote a book about Kissinger in '83 that was just a real attack on you know Cy Hirsch is not the not the most reliable narrator and, and and it's just such a perfect quote that I would never put in an obituary it was like I don't believe that the Chileans should ever govern themselves it was just some absurd thing that I didn't sound right and I tried to ta- track it down and there's no <laughs> there's no real source to it but anyway I I would say that there's there's a there's a very very mixed legacy if you want to see uh read the positive stuff or or somebody making a taking a positive uh position Fred Kaplan wrote a defense of Kissinger. I think it was called In Defense of Henry Kissinger in The Atlantic in like 2013 or 14. Um, and even then, because he was such a hate figure, you'd have to write a piece called In Defense of Henry Kissinger. And Neil Ferguson's um, biography, biographies, is two volumes, I think, right? Are they both out now? I think there's two volumes. Um, that is an extended defense of Kissinger. And he makes a very um, strenuous defense. I don't think he's... he even criticizes them that much at all. And then, of course, on the other side, uh, Hitchens' book is very good, too. Um, I think it's a very mixed legacy. And be, be, I will just say this, be skeptical anytime a, a mob of people is like, particularly people that you know are quite stupid, <laughs> and this is people in my, in my universe, that pop up on my Instagram like, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead. And I'm like, you literally don't even know where Canada is. You couldn't identify it in the map. And they're, they're, it's just, it's a thing that you have to do to show that you're the right on person and you have the right ideas about America. And that's, um, I, I don't think that's, I think you should always be skeptical of things like that. I think it's more complicated. Um, you know, and I think there's some overstatement and a lot of these, I mean, I saw this Isaac Chotner uh, interview that he sent over with um, Richard Haas, who I did a film with a long time ago. And Haas is, you know, appropriately critical of, of Kissinger, who was, he was very, uh, close friends with, I think and I, he, he says he wasn't close friends. They knew each other quite well over a long period of time. I mean, he's, he's, um, on the council. I mean, the head of the council of foreign relations. So, I mean, you know, you know what you're dealing with there. Um, and there was one moment where it was talking about how he gave the green light to the dirty war in Argentina. And it's like, I mean, he basically said, you got to turn your back to the I just think it was a little overstatement. There's a little overstatement here, but the one thing I will say about, bad people. I thought of this the other day, and I brought this up in a conversation with a friend, and I was served up a video on YouTube. There was an interview, I think Mike Wallace's interview with the Shah of Iran. And, you know, it's all about the Savak, you know, the, the, the secret police, and 
the profligate spending of the peacock throne, et cetera. And at some point I was just like, wait, I always talk about yeah, the Shah was bad. It's always the Shah and Batista, right? Yeah. You know, it was like the dictator Batista. No one ever says the dictator Castro. It's like the dicta- overthrew the dictator Batista. And in two cases, these things are both true. If Batista had stayed in power, if the Shah stayed in power, the world would have been a better place. Full stop. I, I, I will brook no dissent on this. The Iranians had a problem, uh, but they were modern, westernized, wealthy, and um, the Shah did a lot to hold on to power when the, the Ayatollah, in, who was in exile in France, was making a lot of noises, and, and none of that is acceptable. But you can imagine a path towards a more democratic Iran happening after the death of the Shah, who died soon thereafter, by the way. Um, and there was a big controversy about him being even treated in the United States for, for right. his cancer. That's how horrible he was, right? And yeah, you know, uh, Abbas Malani's book about the Shah is a very complex picture of him, which I has it's warts and all, but we should read Malani's book on the Shah is really good. Um, but that's the case, and the same thing I think is obviously true of Batista, and nobody realizes, by the way, the Americans pulled their support for Batista, the Eisenhower administration did before the the um, fifty nine revolution, and so that is the 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 kind of thing that people accuse Kissinger of, of like the hard headed with the bad guys, um, Gene Kirkpatrick's dictatorship and double standards, that kind of thinking, and you know that's an interesting that's the world is complicated, and that's what he says when he talks about Tiananmen Square. I disagree with him on a lot of these examples of the world is complicated. Mm-hmm. But the, the the overall vision of it is not wrong because there's the bull session in the dorm room at night where you read your Chomsky book and you make these arguments, and then there's the hard headed reality that sometimes is is uh, you know maybe the Shah wouldn't have been Iran would have been a better place if the Islamic dictatorship hadn't taken. Well, this this was actually the the question that was brewing in my mind as I'm listening to the two of you talk. Like we we have the present moment from a foreign policy standpoint seems. Things seem uniquely unstable, and I don't think it's merely the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think that is bringing a lot of attention to foreign policy in a way that Americans are – they typically seem to be able to completely ignore what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, but mm-hmm. that is uh, – that seems to be as, as hot as it's been um, in many, many years – but in plenty of other places, we see a lot of instability. Certainly, the, the Ukraine conflict has had American attention. Um, but there are plenty of places that seem very unsettled. And one wonders about the, the actual implications, like the practical implications, I should say, perhaps, of Kissinger's approach to foreign policy um, and the degree to which it's helped to create the circumstances that we're currently dealing with. And I don't know mm-hmm. that one can actually draw a very straight line because there's so much else that's transpired. Yeah, but it yeah, does yeah. seem to be a uniquely consequential figure um, in American foreign sure. policy. I mean, if you that's look- That's absolutely true. So there's, I would look at three things right now. There's probably five or 10, but the three that are on my mind um, are two that you named. Then also Venezuela on Sunday is voting on whether to do a war. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Guiana. It's crazy. They're like, should we just do- It's I mean, the weirdest border to Should we do yeah, the war? Yeah. And just like take their oil They're just going to take it, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. They they uh, don't like they don't like the borders that exist because they they cannot access Guyana's uh, natural resources. They say this this probably yes. ought to belong to them because I think that yeah. uh, if there are usable 
Kissinger fing- fingerprints over Israel and Mideast stuff right now, it is that he was, uh, he, especially after the Yom Kippur War, he sort of helped kind of push, broker, get Israel together with Egypt. I mean, it wasn't his doing, uh, and Carter had a hell of a lot to do with it too, but like his influence on that doesn't seem to me to be malign. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, um, you know, uh, th- the things that work in the Middle East in terms of Israel's relationships with its neighbors are actually like hard-headed negotiations with the people who run countries, which is the very Kissingerian point of view, um, totally at odds with what the people in those countries want. <laughs> <laughs> right mm-hmm. it's so they have a, they have deals with egypt and especially jordan mm-hmm. jordanians hate israel and would want it to die they just i mean it's they also hate palestinians and hate palestinians so it's a little complicated <laughs> a lot of hate going on and they probably the story would, of the middle east by the they way they would express it. hatred towards the the ruling uh the, the king uh the monarchy in, in jordan but then they would get executed so they probably keep that mm-hmm. a little bit mum um but you can negotiate deals with the people who run countries in such ways that you can kind of create fragile but nonetheless sort of durable little micro pieces there. And that seems to me um, that Kissinger was not a negative uh, aspect on that. So I don't I don't think Kissinger created that world. I think he's, it's best to think of him as a Cold War creature um, and uh, kind of at the height of America – not the hype, but close to it. I mean, the fifties and then the seventies are probably the two eras where, uh, America is just kind of, um, getting involved in proxy wars and sort of thinking about how to influence this second world country or third world country. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that one, um, that goes away pretty rapidly beginning in the mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it does, and yeah. then Kissingerianism is kind of passe and uh, when he would sort of, you know, they'd wheel him out to comment on this or that. Um, he had a, a business practice um, that was successful for him, um, but I don't know if he was actually all that influential in American foreign policy after the end of the Cold War. I really don't. Yeah, you'd wheel him in, and he would he would you know talk to you for forty five minutes, and then somebody would wheel him out. But um, yeah, and the proxy war thing. Um, in the decline of that, and you know, people that that's the association with, with mm-hmm. Kissinger in so many ways. Um, but this is not about Kissinger, but a very, very simple sentence that nobody keeps in mind, and I don't understand why, is that the proxy wars were fought because there were proxy wars being fought by other people, right? The Soviets were involved in so many proxy wars that people don't even know about half of them. Do people even know the number of Cubans who died fighting in Angola? for the Marxist regime in Angola. Do they know that Yemen was a Marxist state, South Yemen, which was a Soviet client state? That, you know, I, I was talking to an Egyptian guy last night at, at um, after dinner at drinks, and um, then another old Egyptian guy who came and fought in, fought in uh, the Yom Kippur War in the Egypt, Egyptian side came and sat down. He's really funny. He's this, a chef. He's a hilarious guy. And we were talking about this stuff, and I said to the Egyptian guy, um, you know, I mean, how many of the guys that were, were flying those sorties in 73 were Soviet? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There were Russians that were flying the planes. Um, you know, John McCain was shot down by, I think, a Soviet. A guy, the, the battery was controlled, the anti-aircraft battery was controlled by a Soviet uh, soldier, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those, all of those proxy wars didn't happen when you, people talk about this. And, 
you know, if it's anti-war type people or Chomskyite type people, it's all, you know, America did this, America did that. America, and and, and, and if you, even if you suggest, all that stuff would be true, whatever what might be, let's say it's all true, is that it's always talked about in a vacuum and in isolation from all the other factors of other countries um, meddling in the affairs of people too. Now, should you sit back and do nothing about that? That's a perfectly fine debate to happen uh, and to have, but it should be contextualized that um, there were a lot of client states of a lot of other people, and they were all bad guys too. I mean, the Soviets were were, were supporting so many bad guys that you can't even keep track after a certain point. And so it was the it was the shortcut to having your own sense of morality undercut because you could say, well, um, I know apartheid's bad, uh, but you know mm-hmm. Mandela, these guys are pretty commie, and the and the Soviet Union definitely are trying to influence what's happening there and around there. Um, you can talk yourself into it. Um, and one of the geniuses of Ronald Reagan was that even though he kind of kept up on some levels, sort of American cooperation with the apartheid regime, um, and through that kind of mentality of it. Um, he criticized the shit out of them and of uh, apartheid all the time. He was not shy about this. This is, it's actually kind of shocking if you were someone of my age, because that was such a huge deal on college campuses in the mid 1980s Um, for a couple of years. It was, it was not a small thing. Um, And you just assumed that Reagan and everybody else around Reagan just fucking loved them. Some Afrikaners and they loved apartheid. (laughs) They thought it was really cool, made them excited um, and if you go and, and crack open any of the books on my shelf um, or, or just do any kind of reading about it uh, of what Reagan said aloud um, about apartheid all the time, um, it was brutal. Um, and he it, actually he in, in, you know, he updated he he brought um, the sort of conservative foreign policy back into a more idealistic direction and one that was always conscious of connecting with people and sometimes exaggerating the connection, especially in Central America, like, you know, these guys are the freedom fighters when they weren't necessarily. Um, but um, but he was always locating America's sort of like uh, interest in rooting for the good guys against the bad guys and rooting against totalitarian systems and racist systems too, like in, in apartheid. Um, and that was a good contribution. It's one of the reasons why we remember him fondly um, more uh, more than we would have uh, guessed in the 1980s uh, is because of that, and that's not doesn't strike me as Kissingerian uh, at heart. He was mm. he was looking for that sense of idealism. Hmm. I mean, with with respect to what's happening now, <clears throat> sorry, with respect to what's happening now in the Middle East, and before we get to Israel, I think Blinken today was calling on the Prime Minister of Iraq to do a better job of helping to protect U.S. service persons who are stationed there in the country because we've had a number of attacks on U.S. facilities abroad, specifically by these drones. Um, It it appears that Iran is behind these attacks, um, but Mm -hmm. uh, America is not particularly popular in that region of the world at the moment. Um, And there's a sense in which um, Kissinger, I know, has uh, an interesting connection to uh, the Iraq war in that he seemed to be generally in favor of it, but also, I, I know, advised the Bush administration that it was unlikely that they would actually be able to win there. Um, yes. like, what's the connection 
between neoconservatism and realism? Is there a, a sort of direct line that can be drawn between those things, two things? I mean, Matt, you talked about them as I though mean, they the, were the, very distinct. They're opposites, yeah. And and the thing, Kissinger was not very vocal, but he he made noises that he supported the Iraq yeah. war. I think he was advising behind the scenes that the Sunni and Shia differences were a lot bigger than people would um, people in the Bush administration mm-hmm. imagined, and that it was going to cause long term problems. And he came out later and said it was a was a a, a huge mistake. Um, you know, which a lot of good that does <laughs> after the fact. But Kissinger's not a guy who who often says that something he did or advised was a mistake. You can't find many of those uh, uh, statements from him. But you know the the realist the realist perspective which became kind of the anti-war perspective in a lot of ways. I mean, realists at this point were the John Mearsheimer types, um, particularly when it comes to you know things like Ukraine and everything. But as far as um, Iraq is concerned, you know, we've been fighting a war against, uh, with, I wouldn't say against, it's a two-sided war with Iran since 1979. I mean, you take the hostages, that was a, that was a declaration of war in a lot of senses. And then when the Iran-Iraq war happened, everyone said, see, America, they were buddies with Saddam. It's like, well, yes, <laughs> because <laughs> they um, were fighting against the Iranians. And, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy was my friend and we'll back you up. And of course, in the long run, the Iranian war against Israel um, is not surprising. The Iranian war against America just persists. The entire insurgency in Iraq was a was a Iranian job, mm-hmm. and people think about oh, um, Trump. We we love Trump. He was he's our guy. He's our anti interventionist, anti war guy. And it's like you know he killed Soleimani. You know that was that like that was a declaration of war. In <laughs> people were very nervous about what that was going to precipitate. Yeah. Um, so like, as far as like, you know, the, 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 and I don't believe this, these kind of, you know, Donald Trump is on a neoconservative, despite the fact that he hired John Bolton, he hired John, John Bolton because he was on yeah, TV. He, they he hated each other he was. all along. And, and yeah, Bolton, Bolton does not describe himself as neoconservative. Well, yeah. He does not. He does not. He's, I think that's. It's nonsense. I think he's. <laughs> no. Yeah, I think he's kind of cutting the cutting corners. He's in cutting way. corners, but he's got an articulated, articulated theory about it. Okay. Yeah, he has an articulated theory, and it's, it's definitely not exactly the same as somebody like Paul Wolfowitz, but who, by the way, j- just disappeared from the face of the he earth did. just after Iraq stuff. For ne- never heard from him again. Uh, d- Bolton um, who, didn't like who, nation it, building. He didn't. He didn't have. He had a more uh, Kissingerian view that we can't yes. do an idealistic project over there. Um, he just had this and has this uh, exaggerated, in my view, sense that it's America's job to make sure using maximum force that no one ever gets a weapon if we don't like them. Yeah. And it's our, and if we don't do that job, that vacuum will be filled by somebody who's a, a worse actor yes. than us. I mean, that's the right. argument. I'm not saying I agree that I'm just saying that's yeah. the argument. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, the Bolton kind of, uh, that kind of, that, I mean, that's what Donald Trump, Look, he hired him because he was on mm-hmm. TV, but he knew who yeah. he was. At the end of the day, he's dealing with him and he understands. So the people who love Donald Trump, I mean, do understand that, you know, there was the missile attacks and, and 75 missiles thrown into Syria. Um, the troops stayed in Syria. There's American troops that have been there since Donald Trump's administration. The, the Soleimani thing was a big 
a big decision, a big decision that was made. He routed the caliphate, um, which is like the most under-talked about foreign policy thing in the last correct. 10 years. I mean, you know, and, and, and just to move this in a little direction towards, towards mm-hmm. Israel, the looking at what happens uh, in Gaza, uh, the, mostly Israel's air war against Hamas in Gaza, the, the ground troops there who are kind of now again to start barreling towards the south and they've been dropping leaflets and you know sending everybody push notifications giving them these elaborate charts by the way that this zone you can mm-hmm. go to um, and there's numbers and like go to this zone and that zone and people are like oh this is so horrible it's like well i mean that's they're trying to, they don't want these people to die it's not this is not their goal um and i think that's that's undeniably true. Plenty of people, people won't accept that. Become, respect. Yeah. Yeah. It's, people become very simple minded about this and they're like, oh, they love it. They love it. They love it. It's, it's like, like, it's actually the only people that do- it's, it's kind of deranged conspiracy theory. Like they, they permitted the attack to happen, which maybe didn't Correct. happen and they were yeah. shooting their own people from their helicopters, but they did it because yeah. they want to clear Gaza out. And it's just the most yeah. bizarre, longest of long games imaginable. It's Ben. Just makes yeah, no so sense. I think that's a good good correction. It's not simple. Our it's actually quite simple. friend Ben yeah. Dreyfus actually has a, a pretty good piece about the conspiracy theorizing about Israel. That's pretty yeah. Good. And God damn, has it gotten mm-hmm. crazy? It's just accelerated. Holocaust there were no tomorrow. rapes. I mean, uh, if there were I rapes, I mean, who knows? Yeah. But it's just yeah. I, yeah and I, I say this is a, I, I'm not saying that this is equivalent to the mm-hmm. Holocaust, but I'm just saying it's the mechanisms of denial yeah. are the same. It's the way it develops. You see the exact same justifications hanging on to like really weird thin reads of evidence and trying to make this into bigger things. But, um, but yeah, that the, uh, Israel right now, I mean, good God, I was, I don't even know what I was going to say, but there's just, there's too much, um, going on with the, at, with this ceasefire, mm-hmm. um, stopping, but, um, oh I, I, yeah, the comparison, uh, to Mosul, uh, and a few people have made this and the utter complete destruction of Mosul, which was necessary to to rout ISIS. They were not going to be pulled out of their spider holes. And also the moral calculation of like how many soldiers do you think it's okay to lose when you're you know when your job as a commander is to save every one of your soldiers. Um, I can rout them, but I'm going to kill five thousand civilians. Yeah. Is it is it so? What if what if you can kill four thousand and one of your guys? It's not I mean, okay. What is your job? Yeah, is that like, seems to be that it, well, seems to your be job, the, the debate, it's, that, that you have to you yeah, have to lose yeah. at least X number of your people in order for this to be justifiable. Correct. Yeah, correct. And it's like that's you go in hard and you you try to wipe them out, and that's they're trying to. I mean, the Israelis are trying to do that in a very as pinpoint a way as they as they can. But you know, Gaza is not a huge place. But um, you know, seeing some of the the hostages released has been has been both harrowing and um, very depressing from some of the stuff that I've heard, really depressing from some of the stuff I've heard. I mean, really hard to, the, the video, the one video I think is the cruelest thing I've ever seen. Um, I, could, I mean, I I, almost worse than the, 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 uh, with the, the, with the, the hostage. Yeah. It's the most horrible thing. I, I mean, these people are, these, they're, they're subhuman. They're not, the, the Hamas is, these yeah, people are You have to be, have are, to be clear because even, even when you say it, and you say Hamas, there are definitely yeah. people who will misconstrue that and suggest I, that you just refer to all Palestinians as subhuman, I, which is I, just... Yeah, that, that's, that's just the... I mean, if you want to lie like that, I mean, there's nothing I can do, do to stop you, but they you're do a liar. They do want to lie like that. Yeah, but like, I mean, if you watch that video, and I um, force myself to watch a little bit of it, it is a father who is in captivity mm. um, being told by Hamas that 
his, they've killed his whole family. And he is hysterically sobbing and saying, take their bodies back to Israel so they can be buried. Um, and there's a moment you feel, and it's not said, but you feel that this is a person who doesn't care if he's, if he's traded back um, to Israel yeah. at all. That every, he's, he, his life is over and he, he makes that clear. His children and his wife have been killed by these terrorists. And they, they, they gleefully film this and put it online. This is now. This is not like October 8th. I mean, this is now. Um, and if you want to make sure that Hamas is punished even harder than they're being punished now, keep, keep posting videos That's like what they this. want. Yeah, and they do. I think that's exactly right. They do. I mean, but, you know, Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in, in Israel, the never again stuff, Jews, Israelis take very seriously. And when you start producing propaganda thing about about torturing people, killing them because they're Jews, and showing it to the world, um, you know the entire uh, debate about the Holocaust and you know Ken Burns movie and everything is what did we know and when? How did we know this was happening? Did we have the hints? What did we react appropriately? They're telling us. I mean, imagine if the Nazis were just sending us films all the time of the Jews they were killing. They tried mm -hmm. to not do that. Mm -hmm. They tried <laughs> so to destroy a, the evidence. They tried to destroy the evidence. Yeah, yeah, that's what the death marches were about too. But yeah, I mean, it's it's it was absolutely harrowing, and I don't, I actually, I I don't know, I, I don't recommend people watch it if they're um, very super sensitive because it's it I am, and I and it's stuck with me in a way that um, I, that was really I don't know why the, it affected me in the way that it did, but like the guy is like I, hysterical, and it's horrible to watch. Now, well, just to. Sick. To, thick, to throw a little context on this for, for folks who haven't been paying attention, perhaps, but the ceasefire started on the 23rd. Um, today is the first, and now it's over. It, it lasted something like seven days, I guess, um, and was extended yeah. several times uh, as you know, additional um, mm -hmm. groups of hostages were released. Um, it broke down, although there, there were different... Uh, attacks that took place during there. I guess there was the uh, the bus stop that was attacked in Jerusalem, yeah. um, but that that doesn't really yeah. count as part of the ceasefire. It's not in Gaza. Uh, they, uh, Hamas yeah, claimed they it. claimed so it. They <laughs> explained what was going so on. I think it was yeah. a pair of brothers who jumped out of a car and just started yeah. mowing people down. Tried to drive away, mm -hmm. and as they were jumping back in their car, were killed by two bystanders one of whom might have been a military mm -hmm. guy. The other guy was probably a civilian or something. And they, I think it was an IDF guy who had just come back. from okay. Gaza. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and I mean, that's kind of nuts that that happened during the ceasefire. This is Hamas carrying out a, a random attack on civilians during the ceasefire, but whatever. Um, the ceasefire ends and the talk seemed to break down based on the reporting I've seen because the Israelis were insisting that Hamas release uh, something like 10 women um, and uh, Hamas seemed determined to hold on to these people, has suggested that some of them were actually, they were women, but they were IDF soldiers um, and had offered certain men in exchange. Um, and the Israelis weren't interested in that. And I think even before the, the things broke down, or at least before the Israelis began the bombing again, um, there was a barrage of rockets that were fired into yeah, Israel. Yeah. Um, 
into I think into Astral, and, and it yeah. is it is yeah. interesting. I mean, for all of the the talk of ceasefires um, and for all of the outrage and consternation um, directed towards the Israelis, you know, the <laughs> Hamas seems to be trying their very best to kill as many Israeli civilians as they can, like firing mm-hmm. rockets into mm-hmm. Israel. They simply just they're not very good at it, and the Israelis do have the Iron Dome. But the again, it mm-hmm. just puts all of the onus on them. Like if you respond with the methods that are actually available to you, not you know uh, uh, arming your guys with bayonets and sending them into some meat grinder of urban conflict, but using your military to respond to this potential th- to this not potential but actual ongoing and persistent threat right on your border, right next door, um, you are monsters. You're absolutely terrible and. I mean, I, I think there's that. Yeah, every every single time we start to talk about it, I'm just I'm struck by just how intractable the whole thing seems. I, I don't, I can't imagine any sort of sustainable peace that comes out of this. Um, but at the same time, it's very go, hard to, back, to just come down hard on them and say that you can't, you can't respond to any of this. If you go back and look at the Clinton peace initiatives and, you know, everything that happened after Oslo, I mean, all through the 90s uh, up to the Second Intifada, which just essentially destroys peace and for a very long time and continuing to this day destroys any idea of a two-state solution. Um, If you go back then, you have Yasser Arafat, who was a fucking scumbag, a liar and a sleaze, but everybody believed they could talk peace with him and there was eventually you know, could be in the cards. And Arafat wanted that as, as you know, before he died, this was going to be his achievement. But he actually didn't want that. And there's, there's a lot of competing narratives about this. But you, there was a peace partner, slippery one, somebody who couldn't be trusted and who ultimately was going to be subsumed by Islamism. And, you know, he was not somebody who was an Islamist. Um uh, you know, in his original form of, you know, 1970 Kafia Ferayin Arafat is a secularist, socialist, PLO, Marxist, XYZ. Um, the death cult is someone you can't negotiate with um, and doesn't care. I mean, it doesn't care. I mean, this is for all the horrible things that the PLO did. Um, this is beyond anything. I mean, it is the single bloodiest day in Israel's entire history. And the, you know, trying to hack a dead, a soldier's head off and filming it and then putting it online. And this is some of the stuff that the Israelis show um, in that sort of media presentation. That's, this is a different, this is a different level. And I think that this is why I point out the second intifada, because that is a five-year thing from 2000, 2005. A thousand Israelis die and 700 of those thousand, 600 of those thousand were civilians. And it was just every time you got on a bus, it was potential was going to blow up because those were suicide bombers. The PLO was not doing suicide bombing because they were not an Islamist organization. The Islamists are fine with suicide bombing because they're going to be a martyr and everyone's going to celebrate you. And the organization of Hamas will pay your family. They pay your family for a very long time. And by the way, Saddam Hussein in the Second Intifada was paying the families of suicide bombers. From Iraq, he was paying the families of suicide bombers. And that's the change in Saddam too, which is really interesting in that time, is when the Iraqi flag 
gets a Quranic verse on it. Before there was nothing, and that little script in the middle, that became the Quranic verse. And, you know, Saddam built the mosque, the Saddam Hussein mosque, and they produced the Quran in his blood, using his blood, etc. And that was that turn towards Islamism. And that makes, when you say it's intractable, that makes the any conversation, any negotiations, mm-hmm. about a thousand times yeah. more difficult. Um, when, you know, the threat of death is kind of off the table as something that is a dissuading factor. <laughs> I mean, you know, we'll, we'll do, I mean, there was a, a, a clip that somebody sent me today from some guy on TikTok or something. He was like, a, like an Arab TikTok influencer talking to a Hamas guy. And they were like, yeah, no, we're going we're gonna to keep doing, uh, October 7th is nothing. We're going to do, the next time is going to be even bigger. And it's like, yeah, this is what you're up against. So when the Israelis say we have to destroy Hamas, um, that's why they say that we have to destroy Hamas because that's not the October seventh is not the first time, it's not the last time. Um, I mean, it's the first time of that scale, but it's definitely not going to be the last time. According to but what Hamas. fills the vacuum, what happens after that? If even if you can it's, do that incredibly hard, perhaps completely impossible thing, like what comes next? Yeah. Um, well, the, th- the the argument that everybody's radicalized by this, the kids are radicalized, et cetera. They're radicalized without this. sure. It doesn't really make much of a difference. And it feels like you could there probably, is probably also, make it worse. It, that's well, I mean, you know, eradicating Nazism from from Germany uh, after one of the most intensive bombing campaigns the world had ever seen is a different situation. But it happened, mm-hmm. right? And can you do that there? Well, I don't know. But when you have this isolation that that Gaza has been living through for a very long time. Um, it, it develops a political culture that's really kind of infected with very, very dangerous and bad ideas. Whereas the Egyptian guy last night where I was talking to, he's talking about this guy on Egyptian TV and I was like, oh my God, I've seen that guy, the kind of fat guy. And he's like, yeah, yeah, the fat guy who is on Egyptian television talking about how Hamas is a like, horrible organization and they're responsible for all of this. Mm. And like in Egypt, you can have those conversations. Mm-hmm. In Lebanon, um, they try to prevent those conversations with Hezbollah being that shadow government in power, but they're still, you know, Christians and, you know, rational and normal people. Um, the Saudis, I mean, there was a mm-hmm. story today that was in Haaretz that said, you know, secretly behind the scenes, every Arab government really wants Israel to complete the job. Every mm. one of them. They, you know, and with the exception Haaretz, of Haaretz. I've, so I've, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard yeah, that sort Haaretz, of thing though. as well from people yeah, who, yeah. whose opinions yeah. I trust, who seem to have very they informed, destroy informed these people. Yeah, uh, understands of, yeah. uh, of what's going on. But, but for them, the domestic situation is such that you certainly couldn't say that if you are a Saudi prince. You don't come out and say that sort yeah. of thing publicly because the street isn't particularly interested in that. Well, yeah. this is the quote from Haaretz today, but behind the scenes... Almost every leader in the region, including in most of the Gulf states, is urging Israel to end the war only after Hamas is defeated, since they view the organization as, oh, this gets cut off here, sorry, the, uh, behind the paywall. But, yeah, we um, pay for that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I had the whole thing. I, gotta, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel like uh, logging in to complete that quote. You can yeah. go find I it. have a, a, a sliver of optimism, Camille, when it comes Please. to your intractable um, concern. Yeah, give it to me. Which is that uh, I think that the ultimate kind of peace or new arrangement arises from 
a broad realization in four or five different quadrants that October 6th was intolerable. So October 6th is intolerable. It's not hard to see from an Israeli point of view why that's intolerable. You thought that they weren't going to do it, even though you had intelligence that they might. Um, You have this sort of living situation where the people on your borders want to kill you and they have a very open ideology about this. Um, You just can't have that anymore. Whatever that was happening in October 6th, you can't have that. But arguably, you could say um, that, uh, and Israelis are going to be less uh, happy to uh, perhaps grok with this, is that the October 6th situation in large parts of the West Bank are intolerable. If there are places where there's constant checkpoints, mm-hmm. Hebron is like an intolerable city the way that it exists right now. Um, there's parts of just normal Israeli society, not even the West Bank, um, that arguably are intolerable in the sense that they have not really worked out full citizenship questions, not just with Arabs, but with Christians and with Orthodox, right? The Orthodox don't have to serve in the military. Military is the institution that levels across um, society there. And um, for reasons that made a lot of sense in 1949 and make a lot less sense now, um, Orthodox were exempted from that because you needed someone to be working on the on, on the good stuff mm. uh, religiously and, and uh, linguistically. You don't need that many people now. Um, something about that is intolerable. If you're going to have a modern society fractious, crazy, fun society that Israel is internally, um, you're going to need to figure out how you have kind of full participation and full rights of the people who live there that's not necessarily demarcated based on religion, because that's weird um, uh, on some level. The also intolerable, and this is an important one, is from the, the, the point of view of Gazans. You can't mm-hmm. just be sitting there for 75 fucking years, but let's just say, you know, the last 20, pick whatever period of time you want in this and say, we are going to train all of our like mental might on trying to figure out a way to go and do this impossible thing that we know we will lose at, uh, but that we can maybe martyr ourselves in the, in the process. You're never going to get anywhere. You know, you're, you, it's a beautiful piece of land. Um, there are uh, plenty of potentials of what you could do there if you just didn't think and dream and and work on jihad all day long. If you spent some of your fucking money building something besides a fucking tunnel, shit could happen. And and part of that shit that could happen is if you stop firing rockets every fucking day into Israel, um, maybe some of the restrictions that Israel places on you, the blockade, not just Israel, but Egypt, maybe that'll be lessened and suddenly you can like there are different possibilities. And part of a big a- aspect of that October 6th thing is that it was sort of taken as a given that Gaza and Southern Lebanon in particular, but other states arguably as well, but particularly those two, it's sort of, let's just accept that they're going to be vassal states for Iran to um, fuck with Israel. Um, and they're not going to be fully fledged independent on their own. That's not a very popular conception in Lebanon. Lebanon, Lebanese are not super happy about always being on the brink of war with Israel that they don't necessarily want to have. There's something fucking intolerable about that. And so when more people get organized around the way that that status quo that existed on October 6th is not tolerable from any fucking point of view, Mm -hmm. then you can start working towards 
Well, how do you negotiate a fix for that in a way that gives dignity to people in Gaza? Maybe it's a three-state solution. I don't know what the fuck it is. A 12-state solution. Um, (laughs) But if you stop firing rockets against the heavily armed neighbor next door, things might open up for you. I don't know. Um, If you start actually working for Gaza and not being a, a, a vessel from which to harass people, that might work for you. And on Israel's point of view, too, they have things that they could improve and do much better on themselves um, and realize that they can they can have a better world. Um, and part of that maybe is, is a, a more like cold-blooded, realistic look. Maybe it's Kissingerian. I don't fucking know. But like in which you don't have some kind of belief that whatever flowers out of Gaza or the West Bank anytime soon is going to be some beautiful democracy. It's just not like it's at all. Um, So like who is going to negotiate a thing where uh, parts of land can be controlled by people who aren't going to actively try to kill you. That's the next fucking greenhouse. This is the the one uh, final, I'll make one final point on this and I guess we can bounce because we've been doing Mm -hmm. this for a bit. Um, You know what the, the, the depressing thing about it is, is the conversation is, is Israel going to reoccupy Gaza? And I think from their perspective is, well, if we have to, um, Imagine the international institutions that are useless. Uh, they complain about Israel constantly. They act as fora to attack and condemn Israel constantly, but never attack mm-hmm. other people who commit um, worse crimes. Imagine if that um, strip of land, Hamas could be destroyed and the Israelis could uh, pull back to the border of Gaza in which they erect an even bigger and stronger fence because they have to do something like that. And imagine if the United Nations was worth a fucking damn and could go in to Gaza and act as an actual peacekeeping force as the United Nations, who has sunk so much money into Gaza, hundreds of millions of dollars come from the EU, hundreds of millions of dollars come from from the UN, various UN-affiliated things, even the United States, Egypt, Gulf countries, et cetera, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars have flooded into Gaza. I mean, imagine if the peacekeeping force could be a international force, including Arabs, uh, you know, Jordanians, uh, Egyptians, whatever, that kept the peace as that place was rebuilt. And if it was rebuilt in a way that, you know, did not coddle extremists and psychopaths and maybe they would have half a chance but what is the point of an inter- international institution if it can't do that i mean you have the blue helmets in southern lebanon who are completely useless um and why can there not be a negotiation well we all know the answer to this i mean i'm, I'm asking a fake question which i know the answer to but why can't we get together in these international institutions and after hamas is wiped from the face of the earth that the United Nations and international peacekeepers come in and make that place livable. Um, it's very different from um, uh, the Balkans in the 90s, but the, you kind of think like it, it would be worth a shot, but we know why it can't happen and it won't happen. So anyway, that would be the only thing I can imagine where it would be, because you can't have Israelis patrolling the streets there. I mean, this is at West Bank, because you remember this, is that prior to this on October 6th, Hamas was unpopular in Gaza and popular in the West Bank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you look at opinion polls and that's what you see is that, oh, that actually makes a certain amount of sense um, because there wasn't an occupation in Gaza, regardless of what people try to lie and tell you. 
but there is in the West Bank, and they 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 want resistance because they don't like that situation. And you know, it's not a hard thing to understand. Yeah. So well, I'm, I know we'll anyway. be talking about this again soon. There were other other things that I wanted to chat about, especially um, the the with the prisoner swaps that were taking place. There were a, a lot of stories about um, underage people who had been in the custody of the Israelis, um, and in many instances, apparently, just hadn't had any sort of meaningful criminal prosecution. Um, at least that's, that's what's Administrative alleged. Detention, alleged. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. it's basically what happened in the, in the war in Northern Ireland and stuff, the administrative detention. They, they, there is a time limit on it, but, but it's, it's not what we would mm-hmm. expect of a, a normal legal procedure. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's just, it's the whole situation. It's just catastrophic. And uh, we'll, we'll end yeah. there. Um, on that optimistic right. note, uh, <laughs> yes. Started off did. fun, and then we yeah. get yeah get yeah. less fun. I'm not going to crack a joke now. Yeah. It's late. Um, it's all right, too late. we'll just finish. <laughs> we'll just finish there. All right, we'll just finish. Yeah. Finish. Bye. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column.